Now let's segue to talking about the latest evidence to personalize the management of this disease. And there are numerous goals, including relieving symptoms, maintaining function, trying to prevent the serious spinal complications of this disease, manage comorbidities, and support them as individuals. So let's start with some general principles. The initial therapy of all of these patients must be non-pharmacologic intervention, and that includes patient education. I use a lot of different tools. I like the patient education from up to date. It's easy to download and print for them. They need to know that they have an inflammatory disease, that there are consequences to not treating it. We want them to quit smoking. Do they need psychosocial support? And then finally, all patients need some evaluation by a physical therapist for spinal mobility and posture exercises. You know, the last thing in the world we want to do is see someone at the age of 50 with their head tilted down and can't move it back up and teaching patients that they, you know, shouldn't sleep on multiple pillows and how to maintain range of motion are important. I have no problem with physical therapy, massotherapy, mind-body therapy, acupuncture, but spinal manipulation that involves any type of high-velocity techniques is to be avoided in these patients. Now, moving along to pharmacologic therapy, this is moving faster than a raging river. And I'm showing you the 2019 ACR, Spondylarthritis Association, and SPARTAN, the U.S. group that is involved in spondylarthritis research, recommendations for patients with both radiographic and non-radiographic XPA. I'll show you a chart that are now approved for non-radiographic as well as radiographic disease and new classes of drugs that have been approved. I will point out to you that step one, first-line therapy, is something that all of us can engage in with our patients. And so, you know, you can have a strong suspicion that this is spondylarthritis, and there may be a way to get into your local rheumatologist, but you can start with physical therapy, psychosocial support, and start them on nonsteroidals, the cornerstone of therapy. Well, nonsteroidals probably do not have capacity to prevent radiographic damage. They very well may slow it, and they also can give profound improvement in quality of life. Any nonsteroidals are adequate, but they should be used in full doses and a fixed regimen. It's not use it when your back feels bad. It's use it every day. And it takes at least two weeks to get a therapeutic response. And to be a nonsteroidal failure, you have to do it for at least a month. And we usually generally try two nonsteroidals. You guys understand the toxicity profile of nonsteroidals as much as we do as on the rheumatology side. And I will point out that most of these patients are young and they're not very high risk for NSAID gastropathy, but I usually prophylax for that and people on high-dose regular therapy as well. The next slide actually talks about the treatment options beyond nonsteroidals. And as you can see, there are currently three classes of targeted therapies that are approved. TNF inhibitors, the cornerstone, which have been around for a long, long time. IL-17 inhibitors, which have been 
more recently approved. And finally, two JAK inhibitors, tofacitinib and upadacitinib, which have been more recently approved. As you can see, certain of these drugs have been approved for non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis as well as AS, or radiographic spondyloarthritis, and others are approved only for ankylosing spondylitis. I believe that virtually all of these drugs will ultimately be demonstrated to be equally approved. This is a personal C-level opinion on this. The trials to approve for both indications are long and complicated, and we're still very close to the beginning of this. But in terms of regulatory approval and third-party payer approval, you should be aware of this. If you code for non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis, only some are approved. Now, if you look at this bar gram, which shows the responses in clinical trials for spondyloarthritis based upon all of these classes of drugs, the TNF inhibitors, the IL-17 inhibitors, and the JAK inhibitors, and on the bottom comparing to placebo and gold, and then the blue is the first biologic therapy that they got, and then the reds are people that usually have failed another biologic and that readout is something called the ASAS-40. It measures disease activity, measures pain, quality of life, functionality, and mobility in an equation. And as you can see, all of them are quite potent. These ASAS-40s of approaching 50% are rather dramatic compared to what we had with non-steroidals, which are just down at the end of the graph. This has transformed the treatment of this disease to something that was you know, very discouraging and depressing to the patient and to the practitioner, to something that we are so happy to treat because we can control this disease in the vast majority of people. ACES-40 is a fairly high bar, so people that don't get this still may be getting meaningful improvement. If you look at the ASAS-40 responses in non-radiographic disease, very high as well. So, you know, we consider non-radiographic and radiographic equally treatment responsive, and that's why we're so eager to these people that have been called mechanical back pain or fibromyalgia to get into the circle of care, get their physical therapy, non-steroidals, and if they don't respond, start it on a biologic. That's why we think that referral for the use of these, you know, more complex medicines are important. So the approach after multiple pharmacologic therapy failures is far more complex, and that is the domain of the rheumatologist. And, you know, we work interprofessionally with primary care, orthopedists, other practitioners who may be entry points for chronic back pain. The first thing we want to know is diagnosis correct. Are there other complications here? Is there OA in addition to this? Is there another pain condition such as a central sensitization such as fibromyalgia or other condition causing sleep disturbances and fatigue? Does the patient have unrealistic expectations? And sometimes it is refractory and maybe it's just one or two joints. And sometimes skilled bone and joint radiologists can do strategic injections, but that is a far advanced therapy. 
What about tapering these medicines? Does that mean that these people are on this for lifelong therapy? Well, it's a complicated question. We don't have a simple answer. The answer is yes and no. People who have had this disease and have suffered and have lower quality of life often are so happy to be controlled on a biologic. They have no interest in stopping this therapy. Others who are risk-averse or drug-averse, you know, when can I get off of this? When can I get off of this? Well, I'm just summarizing, you know, a handful of trials which basically show that when you stop these therapies, people feel generally good for a few months almost all the time. But over time, a preponderance of patients will reactivate and they need to be retreated. There are these theoretic risks that have been encountered in practice that once a person has responded dramatically and then flares off therapy, a fear that they will not be able to capture the degree of disease control moving ahead. There's no guarantees about that. I think it is infrequently seen, but something that we worry about, and I mentioned to people before they want to pull the trigger and stop all their medicines. Closing in on the end here, talking about management of comorbid conditions. Yes, I mean, we're partners in this. And patients who've lived with an undiagnosed disease are often facing anxiety and depression, sleep disturbances. And we need to look at all the secondary causes and to support them psychosocially and treat these things when needed. 20% of patients with inflammatory rheumatic diseases have fibromyalgia and graded exercise, water therapy. All of these things can be very helpful. Mind-body practices. I'm very big into using things such as Tai Chi and Qigong across the spectrum of rheumatic diseases, but this has been shown in randomized controlled trials to be highly effective in fibromyalgia. Have we managed other intercurrent disorders as well? So let me conclude by giving you three points to consider. One, Identify chronic low back pain in people younger than 45 years of age, and then quiz them for features of inflammatory back pain. This is a linchpin of starting the process of making this diagnosis. Once that has been achieved, that is grounds enough to refer to a rheumatologist for further evaluation. On the other hand, if you want to start with a plain AP pelvis films and look for sacroiliitis, if present, it has positive predictive value, but if it's negative, the diagnostic process still needs to go on. Once diagnosed, initiate the patient on full-dose NSAIDs with all the caveats of safety. In addition, refer these patients to physical therapy immediately for patient education and exercise programs appropriate for patients with axial spondyloarthritis. And then finally, for patients even who have the diagnosis and have been to physical therapy, if they have not responded to non-steroidals, strong consideration to moving them to biologics via referral to rheumatology. Thank you. This activity is certified by Penn State College of Medicine. This activity is developed in collaboration with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids.